Welcome to Football and Society, a new podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. We'll be exploring topics including blind football in Zimbabwe, the pursuit of sporting capital in deprived neighbourhoods in the UK and football in Turkey during the Erdogan regime. I'm Ash McMullen and I'm joined by Norman Riley and Chris Shipman and today we'll be looking at the concept of states of exception in relation to football. Throughout the history of modern football, dictatorships have attempted both to suppress football and to use major footballing events on the world stage to showcase their power. Whilst the people's game provides opportunities for resistance and solidarity, States of exception pose a genuine threat to players, supporters and democratic movements seeking to challenge authoritarian regimes. States of exception is a term used by Professor Tamir Baron in an article published in 2018 referring to states experiencing war, revolution, terrorism or severe economic and political disturbances where any existing order is suspended indefinitely. Tamir's study focuses mainly on the regime of General Pinochet in Chile, who seized power in a coup d'etat in 1973. The previous government, led by Salvador Allende's Unidad Popular, was a keen advocate of football's role in creating and promoting spaces of popular sovereignty and participation. The arrival of General Pinochet, however, marked a new era of repression and brutality towards civil society, including amateur football clubs. Tamir looks at the careers of two Chilean players, Elias Figueroa and Carlos Cacelli. Figueroa was a vocal supporter of Pinochet, while Cacelli was a fierce critic, and the two players suffered very different fates at the hands of the regime. Figueroa was heralded as a national hero and poster boy for the regime, while Cacelli's own mother was tortured because of his opposition. It reveals how, in states of exception such as Pinochet's Chile, the power of football as a space for resistance is curtailed by authoritarian practices. Today, with changes in the world order resulting from globalisation, the focus has shifted somewhat from sovereign states to global networks of power and influence. We are now in a neo-medieval era, Tamir claims, where states share power with international organisations such as FIFA or the UN. Professor Tamir Baron has kindly agreed to discuss his study with us today. Tamir is a professor and researcher in the School of Social Sciences and Government at the Tech de Monterrey in Querétaro, Mexico. Tamir, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure uh, to be here, Ashley, uh, and to be with you and uh, with uh, Norman and Chris as well. Thank you. You're very welcome. And can we begin by asking, why did you decide to research this topic? Well, the research, uh, in a sense, stemmed from a couple of books that I wrote. Uh, so the, the first one is The World Through Soccer, The Cultural Impact of a Global Sport. Uh, that was published in 2014 with Roman and Littlefield. And the second one is called uh, Beyond Soccer, International Relations and Politics as Seen Through the Beautiful Game. That's also with Roman and Littlefield, and that was published in 2017. And so in, in the first book, I wanted to show all sorts of connections between football or soccer and a number of different disciplines. As a political scientist, I focused a lot on politics, but I also looked at the relationship, uh, the relationship between football and economics, football and marketing, football and the arts, football and religion. So each chapter was in fact devoted to the relationship that football has with those disciplines. And the idea 
for the book came from a concept that I borrowed from a Mexican professor, a Mexican philosopher from the UNAM, the Autonomous National University in Mexico. It's called analogical hermeneutic. And the idea is that we as human beings and we as students or my students learn better through analogy. So if uh, I want to study politics, you know, if I go directly into the heavy duty concepts or theories like sovereignty, state of exception, some of the theories, maybe the students would be lost. But if I approach it through analogy or through something else, through painting or through literature or through music or through football or soccer, then the students might be invited to learn about those topics in a way that is more enjoyable, uh, in a way that engages them more. And the idea is, through analogical hermeneutics as well, is to see football through different disciplines and from different lenses and different perspectives. So that's the idea. And I extended that to my Beyond Soccer, where I thought, why don't I take all these IR theories, international relations theories, whatever they might be, liberalism, uh, Marxism, neo-Marxism, constructivism, feminism, post-colonialism, and why don't we use soccer examples or footballing examples, football players, football clubs, FIFA, to try to see these IR theories, but to approach it through the game of football. So, so in a sense, I was extending this notion of analogical hermeneutics borrowed from Mauricio Bouchot to that uh, book Beyond Soccer and to international relations theories. So in short, answer your question. That was a, a long way to answer it. This topic came about through research into my, my two books. Brilliant. I'll tell you what, I had to um, read Bear Life in the State of Exception by Agamben for a particular module. And I guarantee you, I wish somebody had taught me it through football because it, I had to read it about five mm -hmm. times to even get any kind of understanding at all. So, yeah, I'm all for using football to explain complex political and social theories without a doubt. The title of this particular paper uh, published in the Soccer and Society Journal is Reflections on Soccer, Sovereignty in the State of Exception. Before we jump into the article's specific questions, could you give a brief explanation of the state of exception? A state of exception, I would say, is akin to a state of emergency. It's not exactly, but it's akin to a state of emergency, where, in a sense, the so-called normal constitutional order, the normal juridical order, the rule of law is suspended by the sovereign. Now, we might think of the sovereign as a prime minister, a president, a king, a head of a military junta. Technically, the sovereign could be the people through the parliament. But Carl Schmidt, the uh, German uh, legal theorist uh, and important political theorist as well, pointed out that the sovereign is he whom decides on the exception. So the sovereign, let's say it's a prime minister or a president, at any moment in their reign can see a disturbance or disturbances, riots, uh, severe economic or political problems, prolonged periods of terrorism, uh, insurrection, 
and they have the prerogative, in a sense, to suspend the normal constitutional order and to decide that we are going into a state of exception. We are going into a period of, in a sense, martial law where civil liberties that are typically respected, particularly in liberal democratic societies, are in a sense thrown out the window. In your paper, you highlighted the, the stories and the fate of football under various states of exception, uh, and you particularly focused on two players um, who played during Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile, Carlos Casale and Figueroa. Can you just give our listeners a, a couple of brief biographies of these players and, and, and just talk about why you decided to focus on them specifically? Sure, Chris. So, so I focused on these two players, uh, Figueroa and Caselli, uh, for three main reasons. Well, one is that they were teammates on the Chilean national soccer team during the Pinochet dictatorship from 1973 to 1988. Secondly, they had very different political views with Caselli, as Ashley pointed out at the outset, was a socialist admirer of Allende and a critic of the military dictatorship, Pinochet's military dictatorship, and Figueroa being a very kind of enthusiastic supporter of Pinochet's regime. And thirdly, during the uh, referendum on the transition to democracy, the potential transition to democracy in Chile in 1988, they campaign on diametrically opposed sides, with Caselli campaigning for the end of the military dictatorship and the turn towards democracy. Figueroa, in fact, saying, hey, we have to continue this military uh, regime because we have forces from within and forces from outside that are largely liberal leftists and communists, and they threaten the Chilean nation. And the best antidote to that is the continuation or the perpetuation of the military regime. Now, a little bit about these two figures. Figueroa was born uh, in 1946 in um, a city that is interesting. I've been there. I, I really enjoy it, and, and I recommend it. It's a Pacific Coast city called Valparaíso, and it's yeah, and it's ironically the birthplace of both the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet and Salvador Allende. Kind of crazy, right? And at an early age, uh, Figueroa was told by doctors that he would not be able to play any sports because he had breathing problems and he had polio. And this guy became like a legend. Uh, Franz Beckenbauer called him one of the greatest sweepers in the history of the game. And he called him, in fact, a Figueroa that I myself model my game after him. I am Europe's Figueroa. Now, this guy was fantastic. South American footballer of the year three times, 74, 75, and 76. Brazilian player of the year with Porto Alegre in 1972 and 1976. So Chilean going over to play in this excellent league in Brazil. I mean, this is fantastic. He retires from the Chilean national team in uh, 1982. He makes 47 appearances for Chile. And he plays in, I mean, this is amazing. 1966 World Cup, then 74. So skips a World Cup. I mean, Chile doesn't always qualify. And then he plays in 82. So, so, so amazing. Now, something really crazy happens. FIFA 
decides we're going to kind of nominate this guy a player for peace. And, you know, people are thinking, well, do you know what Figueroa was about? Do you know that Figueroa backed the military dictatorship of Pinochet? And so is that really appropriate for FIFA to say that this is a, a player for peace? It, it says, in, in a sense, a lot about FIFA. Now, Carlos Caselli, he was nicknamed Rey del Metro Cuadrado, the king of the square meter. Uh, he had very good close control. He played for, for uh, Chile from 69 to 85. He's perhaps one of the greatest Chilean players of all time. Uh, he played for Chile in 74 and 82, and he scored 29 goals for the national team. He did go over to play in Spain. He played with uh, Levante in the 70s and Espanol from 1974 to 78. Uh, and Conmebol recognized him for a lifetime achievement award. For many Chileans, this guy was a hero because he stood up openly uh, to the regime. He refused to shake Pinochet's hands. In fact, you guys are familiar with him for, from the time when he played with Manchester United. Eric Cantona, the former French international, former Manchester United player, um, has this series called Football Rebels, and he includes Caselli in the series. And he says that this guy had a lot of balls, right? Uh, to, 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 in fact, stand up to the regime, excuse my language, but he was putting his life on the line by standing up to the regime. And of course, the regime tortured his mother. And that just made him, in fact, more enthusiastic about trying to undermine that regime and trying to turn Chile towards a democratic transition. So I hope I showed a little bit about uh, both of these players, very, very different players. Hard to believe that they were teammates. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to understand, and I follow Hannah Arendt here, that we, we live in a world that is a plural world. We've all played football here, I imagine. And can you imagine that you get along with your teammates on all matters politically? No, that would be, that would be in fact, absurd. Mm -hmm. And I played with players myself that, you know, had very diametrically opposed views to my own politically. But nonetheless, we put that aside, um, you know, at the time of the match because we were on the same team. And I, I, I think this is this, the same case for uh, Caselli and Figueroa. Even as fans, I guess, we hear things from other fans when we're, we're watching games that, you know, you know, appall us. And that's one of the one of the really difficult moments being a supporter. Yeah. And going back to Caselli, one question is, how on earth did he survive, given the, the mass executions in Chile, when you had this public figure who, as you say, refused to shake hands? Do you know why he did manage to survive, why he himself wasn't subjected to torture, for example? No, I mean, I, I, I can only suspect that, in a sense, this was a hero for all Chileans. It was indirectly a hero for Pinochet, too. You have to remember, if you're going to be an authoritarian regime, you sometimes have to be careful who you pick on. So, I mean, they can disappear people that are unknown people, but if you start to disappear a Caselli, Chileans, irrespective of political stripes, will say, what the hell are you doing, probably? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a national treasure, ultimately. 
I'd like to make a historical analogy and I'd like to say it's interesting that even Mussolini, although he put him in a hospital, a government run clinic, he didn't kill Gramsci, you know, the head of the Italian Communist Party. I mean, who's in a sense the biggest enemy of the fascists? It's the communists. They're the biggest competitors. And so he doesn't kill him. It's in fact very surprising, but I think he understood that Gramsci had a lot of support and that Gramsci in a sense was indirectly, although the points of view are different, a national treasure for Italy and for all of humankind. Yeah, completely understand the logic there. So Chilean football, obviously we had um, the end of the Pinochet regime in 90 or 91, I can't remember exactly which year it was. And obviously you then have, I guess, kind of process of, to a certain extent, of truth and reconciliation, right? To a certain extent. I mean, obviously, Pinochet was still head of the military for a long time afterwards. But um, how has Chilean football addressed the legacy of the regime, given that, obviously, there were figures like Figueroa and um, Iwo Basai as well? I guess, how have fans in the Chilean football industry itself come to terms with any complicity that they were involved in? Very good question, Norman. I tend to think that the reminders, I've been to Chile, are everywhere the reminders of the disappearances, the reminder in front of the national stadium of what occurred, of the torture and the disappearances. You know, this supposedly place of joy, of beauty, of communion, of different peoples becomes a place of torture. That's everywhere in Chile. It's hard to avoid, and it's going to be hard to avoid for a long time. So I think, in a sense, there is an attempt in Chile to, on the one hand, never forget, but on the other hand, you know, national peace and national uh, reconciliation. We somehow have to move forward. We somehow have to leave this dark chapter in Chile's history, not to forget, but to move on at the same time. Uh, and one of the things that the Pinochet regime brought about, you know, many things, of course, but it, particularly with regard to football, is a is a is the return of traditional gender roles, uh, and that it arguably interrupted the project for women's football in Chile at a time where internationally women's football was being given a little bit more credence, a little bit more focus. How's that? played out since the end of the dictatorship? Have we seen a kind of compensation for that? Is Chile left behind? What's your thinking on that? So here, I think I'll defer to a few colleagues, okay? And I would urge the listeners to pick up the books on football and gender roles in Chile by Brenda Elsie. She's a professor at Hofstra University in New York and another specialist on gender and football in Latin America in general is uh, Joshua Nadell. So I would, I would urge people to, to, to look them up, Joshua Nadell and Brenda Else. And they also, in a sense, look at the difficulties with women in football in Latin America today, and in particular for Elsie in Chile. And if I can paint a general picture of what they say, it is essentially that we don't really care about the woman's game. 
we give far less money and resources to uh, women's national teams compared to men's teams. Mm -hmm. uh, we give it less coverage. We give it less credence. We uh, denigrate it by suggesting that they are somehow less skilled. It's interesting as well in terms of coaches. Now, you do see uh, more women's coaches of national teams, of women's national teams. I mean, I suggest that we, we should see, uh, in fact, far more. Now, the problem, I think, is with the national federations that are often run or staffed by men in many places, particularly in Latin America. But a problem has also been with FIFA. FIFA, for a long time, hardly had any female uh, members, hardly had any woman on its board, on its top administrative position. Now they're starting to pay attention to that. Now they're slowly starting to bring in women. It's still extremely slow. But as a result, I think that in terms of women's football in particular, I'm not suggesting that Chile is right now the same as in the Pinochet period in terms of general roles. No, they're far away from that. But there's a long way to go in Chile, in Mexico, in Latin America, I would say within FIFA, to kind of give greater credence, to valorize the women's game, to compensate it, to make it something that is meaningful, that is a contribution to football, and not to always necessarily compare it, right, with the men's game, because I think that they're different. So I think that this is going to take a long time. But you'd be surprised, for example, that while Chile had a female head of government, Michelle Bachelet, you have in Mexico about half of parliamentarians now are women. The irony is that there's all these killings of women because they are women at the same time, and all this kind of pro-macho attitudes at the same time. So civil society certainly hasn't changed in relation to kind of the greater kind of acceptance of women politically. But I point these examples out because examples can be made at the highest levers of government to actually give women uh, greater opportunities, whether it's in politics or whether it's in football. Interestingly enough, I um, was very lucky to get to interview the head of the Chilean Women's FA in Chile a couple of years ago. And that was at the that was actually at the Chilean FA in, in Santiago. And um she one woman, Wale, Wale Fuchslocke, she's a an absolute powerhouse. And she told me a story that obviously she went to school during the Pinochet era. And she I think at the age of 10 or 11, they were told to um either choose football or something, you know, something mundane for air quotes for girls. And she chose football and her teacher said she couldn't do it. She said, I want to do it. She got taken to the head of to the headmaster. And the headmaster said to her, the day I see a woman on a football pitch is the day I stop teaching. And uh, 20 or 30 years later, she basically got a Chilean women's team to the World Cup final. So there you go. Hopefully that headmaster's not teaching anymore. It's not just not just down to his age. <laughs> that that's a great story, Norman. 
And the National Stadium in Chile, which was originally built in 1962 to host World Cup matches, was actually used by the Pinochet regime to torture and execute those opposing the regime. And I found that a particularly chilling detail in in your article. Um, And it highlights how the very spaces used by football to unify people can be used for brutal repression. It made me think of the construction of stadiums in Qatar for the 2022 World Cup, um, which has led to the deaths of migrant workers, and yet little has been done to investigate those deaths and suspected human rights violations. Why do you think that architecture, including sports stadiums, is so often a key site for dictatorships looking to maintain the state of exception? Good question, Ashley. Look, I think that they're sending a very clear message to soccer fans or football fans and those who don't care about football at all that the game is over. The time has come for us to say to you that the game is over. You can no longer play. It's the moment of life and death. We have enemies all around us. We cannot play anymore. We have to hunt them down. We have to prosecute them. We have to torture them if necessary. We have to kill them if necessary because they are a danger to the Chilean nation and they are conspiring from abroad. And even worse, they're at home. And so the message they are sending is that this is a deadly, serious regime. This is a regime that doesn't play. This is a regime that will decide on whether you play football. This is a regime that will decide on everything, on whether you will see your friends and your family members and your lovers again. So it's very dark. It's a very dark message in my estimation. The joy is gone. The game is over. The solidarity has been smashed. Really, really powerful. Um, And moving on, I guess, to an incredibly powerful institution as well. A a Leviathan, to a certain extent, FIFA. This is a really long-winded question, so I apologise to you, to me, and to the listeners. And you can tell that I've written it precisely because it's about 800 words. You, uh, You state that FIFA's sovereign powers are no secret. Its capacity to wield its power and influence the policymakers of nation states is evident. Do you consider its modus operandi similar to the state of exception? If I can go on, it, it's a self-govern, it's self-governing, wields great power, operates with impunity and makes decisions based on what benefits it as opposed to member states. It's the global game, yet it's an entity that takes decisions for its own financial benefit. I also thought of FIFA as a state of exception when reading your conclusion. This is a quote. The sovereign state decides what the exception is and how long it will be sustained. A state of exception creates a violent political space. The sovereign decides about life and death. Whilst it might seem dramatic to label FIFA as violent and having the capacity to decide on life and death, I couldn't help thinking of its behaviour that you mentioned earlier in the article. The Brazilian World Cup in 2014 particularly. FIFA taking profits out of the country. Money for social housing being re-channeled to pay for stadiums at FIFA's behest. Tax exemptions. You also mentioned the profits FIFA took from South Africa in 2010. Could these acts not be seen as violent? And given the money not being spent on social welfare causes, there's not only an extractivist colonial aspect to FIFA's behaviour, it does ultimately have the power to make decisions that impact on life or death? Amazing question. Extremely complex. And I'll, I'll try the best I can, Norman. I think that we shouldn't get that carried away. I think, though, that FIFA is powerful. They have sovereign powers in relation to states, uh, in relation even to 
to, to, to other actors in the international arena. Yet it is states that ultimately actually make the decision to exercise their monopoly over the use of force, to be authoritarian or democratic, to implement the state of exception, and to even torture players, as we saw in Chile during the Pinochet regime. Now, I did dub FIFA a supranational organ of the industrialized countries. And I did suggest, following Headley Bull, the English school theorists, that FIFA, in fact, has powers that are neo-medievalist, in which states share their sovereignty with other entities. So it's true, states increasingly share their uh, sovereignty with civil and commercial entities outside the state. Sovereign powers are no longer the privilege of the state. And I think FIFA is an example of this. FIFA at times sits above sovereign states, as in decisions, for example, to award World Cups to sovereign states. Or it creates, in fact, national federation, even if certain um, sovereign states reject that decision. China wasn't particularly happy when FIFA let in Hong Kong. And I don't think the Israelis were particularly happy when you know FIFA led in Palestine. Or I don't think the Serbs were overjoyed when Kosovo became a member of FIFA. FIFA can also expel member states. It creates ad hoc security laws. It granted Russia the 2018 World Cup, but also declared that Crimean clubs could not play in the Russian League after Russia illegally annexed Crimea from Ukraine. So to summarize, I would say that the sovereign for global football is not the same sovereign that always decides on the fate of clubs, players and fans at the national level. You note that the current model of state sovereignty may change or may not exist in the future, perhaps due to these changes in the the current neo-medieval era that you've just described to us. Um, And you give the example of the EU, which in effect allows multiple layers of sovereignty and therefore multiple layers of personal nationality and identity. This made us think of international players who, once they do play for one national side, they can't switch, with some exceptions. So English players can play for Team GB, for example. Can you see this changing, or or will we continue to be bound by permanent and unmovable claims on players' nationalities? So I think the supporters of Make America Great Again I think the supporters of Bolsonaro, I think that the supporters of Modi and uh, Netanyahu, they're okay with the rules, with those rules. I mean, why the hell would you, you know, want to go somewhere else? Why the hell would you have this kind of messy double nationality? Fight for your people and fight for your country. And, you know, football is part of that. Having said that, that's a part of the world. And, you know, I think if you do allow the switch or if you allow more switches and not just at the youth level, what will end up happening is perhaps this will assist national teams that have a hard time getting talent. Now, I'm sure that they'd have to put a cap on how many switches you can make. I mean, two, three, Four, I don't know. You know, but if you look at it historically, I'm thinking like 
before these rules came into existence, there were players who played for different national teams. So I could see it happening. And let's be clear as well. We do live in a more globalized and a cosmopolitan era. People are more mixed than we think. People live in different places and travel a lot. And so as a result, it's very likely that you could have two or three passports. Hmm. I mean, I have two. You know, I was born in Israel and I, I went to Canada and I could technically apply. I live in now in Mexico. I could technically apply for a third. And, and so then I could technically play for three different national teams. I'm not that good. I'm just a piano carrier, you know? That's all I do is just recover balls and give it to the good guys. But anyways, the, the point is they wouldn't want me. These national teams wouldn't want me. I'm not that good. But the point is, why not? Why not? I mean, do I not feel some attachment to Israel, the place I was born? Yes. To Canada, a place I lived in for so many years and I was raised in, I did all my studies. Yes. Do I not feel something for Mexico after 10 years? Yes. So what's the problem? What's the problem? Mm. Uh, so I, I, I do see that as evolving a bit. And I guess you've highlighted an important point, which is it's the player's own sense of their affiliation too, that they're, and in that respect, they've got their own autonomy and, and choice as well. Um, Absolutely. I was just going to say, it's also good that you still harbour dreams of um, being a national footballer to me, as I also harbour dreams of playing for Newcastle still. Despite the fact that I'm 43, I don't think that'll be a barrier. It You'd probably be. make the team currently, wouldn't you? Oh! <laughs> what a zinger. There's still time. Uh, there's that Japanese player who's just signed on for a new uh, contract. I think he's, what, 56? Really? 53. Yeah. He's 53. My Sorry, I've added a couple of years, but he'll probably still be going at 56 anyway. So, so he's 53. He's, I think it's his 36th contract. Yeah, something he's been like that. Since the 80s. Something absurd. Yeah. I think I'd have to get onto a club first. I can dream. Okay, I can dream. <laughs> Even at 53. I'll back you. I'll back you. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, Tamir. We could have gone on for hours and we'd certainly suggest to our listeners to check out your article. But also, where can they engage with your work online? Are you on social media or is there a website they can access? Roman and Littlefield, I mean, has my books. Uh, it has uh, Beyond Soccer and The World Through Soccer, The Cultural Impact of a Global Sport. So certainly um, they can get my, my books from there. The article that you've mentioned, I mean, that's from Soccer and Society, and they can certainly also get that. I am on Twitter, although I'm mad with them lately because I think that, you know, I don't use them too much, but I think that they're being excessive in terms of what they do and what they don't do. I think they're totally inconsistent, but I am on Twitter, okay? I am on Facebook. My email, I'll give you guys my email, T-B-A-R-O-N at tech, T-E-C dot M-X. So that's my email from my university, the Tecnologico de Monterrey. If people uh, want to, to write me, if people want to pursue a conversation, I'd be very happy to do that. Brilliant. Well, we will put the details of, of your books and your websites in our episode description so uh, listeners can can access them. Um, thank you once again, Tamir. That's all You're very, from... very welcome, Ashley and Norman and Chris. You guys are doing an amazing, amazing job. 
the topics that you're going to tackle sound so intriguing, and I, I'll be very interested in listening in. So congratulations on this amazing endeavor. Well, that nicely wraps up today's podcast. Thank you to Mir and to the listeners as ever. We'll be back with you soon.